Cambridge Ideas, transforming tomorrow. Hello, I'm Ed Kessler, and you're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. In this talk, we ask, do we need a new morality for the 21st century? Do the changing issues the world is confronting, from climate change to the war on terror, require a different moral code? On the panel is Sheikh Michael Mumisa, a highly respected Muslim academic and theologian, he is the author of a number of studies, including Islamic law, theory and interpretation. David Ford is Regis Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Selwyn College. He is also acting director of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme. And Simon Blackburn, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Until recently, he was Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So let's go inside the Mill Lane Lecture Room here in Cambridge, and here our first speaker, Sheikh Michael Mumisa. Do we need uh, new morality for the 21st century? Uh, when I think about this question, it reminds me of certain moments in history. Um, I would like to reflect on, or rather touch on, uh, an event that uh, led scholars and theologians to reflect on this very question. In 1949 and 1950, I wasn't born then, and I know most of you were not born, including these scholars. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the apartheid government in South Africa passed its first ever legislation under the new uh, system of apartheid, which aimed at criminalizing mixed marriages and interracial sexual relations between blacks and whites. The new law, which was passed with strong support from the Dutch Reformed Church, was known as the Immorality Act. And it remained in place until 1985. Theologians and ministers of religion and the Dutch Reformed Church had campaigned tirelessly not only for the Immorality Act, but also for the system of apartheid as a whole, which they attempted to justify on biblical grounds or their interpretations of the Bible. On the other hand, the English-speaking churches in South Africa and the African churches, together with some Jews and some Muslims, condemned and opposed the Immorality Act. The English-speaking churches and the African churches argued that the Immorality Act passed by the state with the support of the Dutch-speaking churches was immoral and against basic biblical and Christian principles. Now it gets very interesting. The first person, or one of the first people, to be convicted under the Immorality Act was a minister of religion in the Dutch Reformed Church. There is a God. <laughs> The same church that was justifying and defending the new legislation on religious grounds and its own interpretation or definition of morality. They found him engaging in a sexual act in his garage with his domestic worker. He was found guilty and given a suspended sentence. Meanwhile, his parishioners thought they had a solution. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. It actually happened. They felt that they had a solution to the problem. So one Sunday after mass, they came to his house with a bulldozer 
and bulldozed the garage. So as far as they were concerned, <laughs> as far as they were concerned, the problem was not the law itself, the legislation. It wasn't the minister who had embarrassed the church. It was the garage. <laughs> but this event led to very interesting discussions and debate among theologians, philosophers. They started asking, should society allow or grant license to any group, whether they are religious groups of people or political groups, the authority to define morality and moral values? For theologians, within the various churches, the challenge was how to ensure that religious texts are not manipulated to fix and impose exclusivist definitions of morality. This is not to suggest that the clergy and the theologians, as well as these philosophers, were beginning to doubt or question if the idea of universal moral values was valid. Far from it, as theologians and philosophers, they believed in an idea of universal moral values. They had to, because in order to argue that a system and piece of legislation such as the Immorality Act was immoral and had to be undermined, they had to appeal to people's sense of shared moral values. It was not enough to simply say, because God said so. Solidarity against such legislations could only be possible if the people from different racial, cultural, and religious backgrounds, as well as philosophical positions, could demonstrate that the legislations were immoral and against universal moral values shared by all people. As a Muslim, those Muslims who were living in those, uh, in those times, in the 80s in particular, they were not immune to these debates and immune to these developments. And Muslims also in history have not been immune to such challenges. In the 14th century, Abu Ishaq Ashatibi, who died in the year 1388, a Muslim moral philosopher and jurist born in Granada, Spain, wrote his most important work called Al Muwafaqat, which translates as The Agreements, which now appears in five volumes and still available in its original Arabic. Ashatibi's work did not receive any special attention when it was first written, perhaps because the moral and ethical arguments Ashatibi was advancing at that time, at the moment in Spanish history now referred to as convivencia, the coexistence between Muslims, Jews, and Christians, and others, were taken for granted by his people. It was not until the beginning of the 20th century that Ashatibi's text and the philosophical arguments presented in it led to a civil war of ideas between traditionalism and modernism in Muslim societies, with each group claiming to be the true custodians and correct interpreters of the Spanish Muslim philosopher's work. At the heart of Ashatibi's argument is the idea that while as individuals or groups we come from different cultures which have been shaped by particular what he referred to as Juz'iya and specific historical experiences, we all share certain universal or what he referred to as kuliyat and supra-historical moral values which are not unique to any particular religion, 
they are found in Judaism, in Christianity, as well as other philosophical groups which may not necessarily be religious. However, as historical beings, our interpretations and definitions of such universal moral values do not take place in a vacuum, but are affected by our particular Jews-ear experiences. This means, therefore, that even such definitions and interpretations of what are thought of as universal and supra-historical moral values should be constantly challenged and examined, particularly in those moments when people with different customs meet and they continue to meet and interact and live in the same region and same space. The challenges presented by multicultural societies, globalization, the movement of people around, means that Muslims of the 21st centuries have no option but to re-engage with Ashatibi and his philosophies if they are to ever going to resolve the tension between the universals on one hand and the particulars in their interpretation of moral values. We begin to see that happening, that Muslims are re-engaging with these issues. Uh, of course, there is an internal debate uh, in various Muslim communities in terms of who is doing the interpretation and if they are loyal to some of these uh, arguments presented. And I conclude uh, and stop here. Thank you. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. We're discussing whether we need a new morality for the 21st century. Next to speak is Professor David Ford. I'm a classicist by training in Greek and Latin classics originally, before I moved into theology. And I'm absolutely fascinated by the way in which Greco-Roman civilization interacted with Christianity, but also with Judaism and with Islam. Uh, and also, of course, later on, with, uh, with a variety of secular options as well. In other words, there's been an ongoing debate, and ethics, morality, has been right at the heart of that. And in my own Christian tradition, the sort of classic resolution of that, the classic constructive uh, response to that, has been what were called the four cardinal virtues and the the three theological virtues. And that's more or less what I went through just then. The four cardinal virtues are courage, justice, prudence and temperance or moderation. The three theological virtues are faith, hope and love. Now I could say a great deal more about that but I want to get on to my second, uh, my second step. But on the point of those things it seems to me I want to say nothing new. You have to face all sorts of new situations, think them through originally and innovatively and so forth but fundamentally I wouldn't want anything certainly that rejects those uh, to, be, uh, to be the morality of the 21st century. So that's the first step. The second step. Well, it's a yes uh, in answer to that question to some extent. There are some quite new elements in modernity. I say quite new, relatively new, that nothing's really completely new. And I was rather attracted by a book by a French uh, social anthropologist uh, which said, we have never been modern. And basically what he was saying, that if you look beneath the surface, there's an awful lot of dynamics that actually are pretty the same right through modernity. And we can easily overemphasize the, the, the newness of modernity. But there is a lot new, nevertheless. And one of the things that's new is... Um, 
expanded on at great length in a large, sprawling book by the philosopher Charles Taylor called A Secular Age. He really needed an editor for it, you know, because uh, as you go through that, that, that book. But it is a very good book, I found, a very interesting one. And what he does is he shows how in the last 500 years there has been quite a radical change uh, emanating from the West in particular uh, in terms of you know, where religion was taken for granted as the framework of everyone existed to one in which uh, that is not the case that there are radically secular atheist options and so even religious people who are very strongly religious have to recognise that there are these other worldviews around as well. In other words, we are in what I would call a complexly religious and secular world and one of the reasons why I am director of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme is that I am very concerned that some of the biggest issues arise out of the, the situation we're in at the moment where there are these major religious traditions often fighting each other and so forth causing major problems as well as shaping the lives of billions of people between 4 and 5 billion worldwide it's estimated are directly involved with the major religions but also so there are very strong secular forces as well. And uh, as, as we know, there's all sorts of awful possibilities for our world, but there are also very good possibilities. So how do you cope with this situation, it seems to me? And I think that the old settlements, the ways in which were worked out, often in response to religious conflicts and wars during the early modern period and afterwards, and you see there's different sorts of settlements in France, in America, in Holland, in this country, uh, in Switzerland and so forth, that they've worked out different settlements, Canada, America, different still. Um, but I don't think any of those are working all that marvellously at the moment. And so my answer to, you know, do we need a new morality for the 21st century, certainly in the public realm, as the different religions and other traditions try to engage with each other and serve the flourishing of the whole world, um, that we, uh, we really do need new things. And that's part of what, as I say, why, why I'm involved in, in that whole area of, of interfaith engagement, but not just between faiths, but between the faiths and the, uh, the secular world as well. And the second thing that's relatively new, I think, is the extent of global interaction, the level of communication and interplay and so forth. Things come up against each other much more sharply, and we have a much more pluralist society in this country, for example, and many other countries of the same, huge migrations of populations, uh, which have meant that it puts a huge strain on the ways in which societies can cohere and there's such diverse uh, values and practices and, and so forth. And I'm not sure that human rights and tolerance and that are, are, are enough in themselves. My own favourite recipe uh, is that what we're called into is what I would see as a triple dynamic of going deeper into whatever your own tradition is, if you accept that tradition, um, deeper into the positions of others, the, the, the worldviews of others, try to, try to engage as, as, as deeply as, and richly as possible, preferably face-to-face, -face. Um, and also deeper into concern for the common good. And that triple dynamic seems to me to be something that we really need to help to flourish uh, as, as much as possible. And at the same time, we have to engage with all those new issues that modernity throws up in so many areas uh, where we're faced, as we come from the past, with you know, how far do we, in the face of all sorts of new phenomena, how far do we accept them, how far do we reject them, and how far do we strive to transform them? And that's the sort of very common dynamic. And uh, there's all sorts of conversations need to happen, debates, and inevitably there's going to be a lot of conflicts. 
So that's my qualified yes to, to, to the question. But I also want to finally uh, answer with a quite radical yes. Do we need a new morality in the 21st century? Last weekend, I went to Trollybreuil, if my French is right, in, um, in near, near Paris um, with a Muslim friend, Dr. Arif Ali Nayed, who had given a major lecture here in, in Cambridge uh, last week. Um, and we went in order to, to the L'Arche community, L'Arche, <coughs> which is uh, now a network of communities. We went to the mother community, but there's a network of communities worldwide. Many of you, have any of you heard of L'Arche? Yeah, quite a sprinkling. Um, I mean, they, they are for people with severe uh, learning difficulties, severe disabilities, and there's a network of about 120 of them in all continents now. And they were founded by somebody called Jean Vanier, who's now, who's now 80. And, um, and I was bringing uh, Arif there to introduce him to Jean Vanier, and it was one of those just quite extraordinary meetings, actually, to see, a, to see this Muslim philosopher and theologian who is uh, deeply concerned with... Well, his lecture here was on a theology of compassion. Uh, and uh, meeting Jean Vanier, uh, and them sharing, you know, just how they, how they understood things. But in a way, and Jean Vanier has been a candidate for the Nobel Peace Prize and so forth, and I very strongly recommend his, his books to you. But in a sense, even more remarkable was going to what they call a foyer, you know, a household where young assistants were living with core members, with people with severe disabilities. And there... Um, and just to see the quality of the interaction there, the, the, and, and it's, a, it's a community that, thri that has at its core this putting those with disabilities, the weakest people, in the centre, and then relating to them and having that as the touchstone for everything else. And with uh, the, the concept of friendship with those with disabilities right at the heart of the matter. And it seems to me that when you see something like that, you do see a very radical challenge to an awful lot of conventional morality and values. To put love and friendship and gentleness and patience and a sense of celebration as well uh, over against so many of the other things that dominate people's lives in our society, it seems to me, would give the grounds for a big yes to our title question. Thank you. Next speak is Edward Kessler. Uh, in, in my view, we need not so much a new morality as a renewed morality. A renewed not just for the 21st century, but in fact for every generation. As the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Bible states, le dor vador, from generation to generation. Now my remarks will focus on the role of faith communities in British society today, which it seems to me is one of the challenges in the first decades of the 21st century. Uh, and since I'm speaking as the Jewish representative on this panel, I will offer some Jewish reflections. Like many other immigrants, Jews came to the UK as asylum seekers from successive waves of persecution. First, they were descendants of the victims of the Spanish and Portuguese expulsions. And more recently, uh, like my parents, they came as refugees from anti-Semitism. Now, it wasn't always easy to be Jewish in Britain. It took 200 years before Jews were permitted to enter universities or be elected to parliament. Jewish immigrants were poor, concentrated in ghettos, barely able to speak English, and were caricatured 
as alien elements in British life. Jews who remember those days should readily sympathize with immigrants today, especially from the Muslim world. Yet, within an astonishingly short time, they were full participants in British society. They were philosophers, such as A.J. Eyre and Isaiah Berlin, historians, such as Martin Gilbert and Simon Sharma, businessmen, such as Michael Marx of Marx and Spencer, and even Alan Sugar, politicians, such as Malcolm Rifkin or Michael Howard. So what there is, is a message of hope here, because integration and acceptance don't happen overnight. And yes, there were conflicts between immigrant parents and their British-born and educated children. Now, importantly, there was a long struggle to define an identity which was both British and Jewish. And there are pains of adjustment, not permanent conditions. And this is why I want to put the emphasis on a renewed rather than a new morality for the 21st century. And the seeds for this renewed morality are being sown almost as we speak. Adapting, adapting imagery from Isaiah 29, in my view, a fruitful field will grow in our time, even in our city. Today, for example, the Cambridge Muslim College, under the guidance of Tim Winter, is one example of a desire to integrate, adapt, belong, and at the same time to remain distinctive, vibrant, and unique. Classes for a combination of Muslim and Jewish students taught by Sheikh Maka'el is another example. And yet there is a fundamental difference between our generation and the previous generation or two because Britain was different then. It seemed to know who and what it was. It seemed to have had more confidence. It seemed to be a nation secure in its own identity. And yet today's society is a witness to moral relativism and an overemphasis on rights rather than responsibilities. Now these may have developed for the highest motives, but by the law of unintended consequences, they have made it harder for faith communities to integrate. The result is not more tolerance, but less. Perhaps as a consequence, for the first time, for some time, some Jews feel uncomfortable here in Britain. We have heard public figures making crude jibes about Jews. We've seen Holocaust Memorial Day, dedicated to all victims of man's inhumanity to man, misrepresented and politicized. And throughout Europe, Jewish students have been harassed, synagogues vandalized, and cemeteries desecrated. Now these things matter, not because of the threat they pose to Jews, but because anti-Semitism is always an advance warning of a wider crisis. When a Jewish cemetery is vandalized one week, you can be sure that a Muslim cemetery will be desecrated the following. And today, perhaps as an inevitable consequence in our generation, we are witnessing how faith groups are in danger of becoming pressure groups, instead of thinking what is in the best interests of Britain as a whole. And this is true of my own community as well. That is not good for some of us, and it is bad for all of us. So here is one suggestion, first mentioned to me by Cardinal Walter Casper, <coughs> president of the Pontifical Commission for Religious Relations with the Jews. 
when he discussed Catholic self-understanding at the Wolf Institute a few years ago. He proposed a renewed memoria futuri, a memory for the future, which I think can be useful when reflecting on the role of faith communities in 21st century society. Now, today, we all recognise that faith communities are affected by change in wider society. Now, this leads to a change in both individual and communal identity and has resulted in what's commonly called a hybrid identity, when one's identity is constituted by a multiplicity of different identities, cultural, religious, ethnic, linguistic, national, that were once considered distinct identities. Now, this is a relatively new development here in Europe, but has a longer history and is more common in the USA, where a hybrid or hyphenated self-understanding is commonplace. So the challenge facing us in Britain today, as a result of hybrid identities, is to acknowledge that people cross boundaries that previously divided insider from outsider. These identity boundaries, previously more clearly defined, are increasingly blurred. Change is occurring. And since individuals and communities have to readjust and redefine who they are, identities become fragile. And this fragility can, and has, easily led to hostility and prejudice as a defensive reaction. The reaction against rapidly shifting boundaries of identity, especially one, uh, when one or more identity is perceived to be under threat, has inevitably led to an overrootedness in one aspect of one's own identity. It has led to a focus on the past, often a negative memory of the past. And this leads to a consequent decrease in the willingness to dialogue or engage constructively with the others. So my hope is that a renewed morality will help faith communities look forward, not backwards, will give the past a vote, not a veto, over the future, that a memoria futuri will not only be forward-looking, but will embrace and welcome the multiplicity of 21st century identities. Because if there is one feature that I think the representatives of these three faiths share is the need, as David said, even the imperative to maintain a sense of optimism and faith in the future. Thank you. Next speak is Professor Simon Blackburn. On the question, do we need a new morality, I think... It depends a little bit how badly we're doing at present, I take it. And a number of things have been mentioned which suggest that improvement is possible. There are a number of dimensions in which improvement is certainly possible. I agree, for example, with David that um, uh, we probably have a culture which, as it were, elevates rights into something much more important than responsibilities, and I think that's a pity. I think we have a culture in which, for example, the notion of the public good has diminished or withered over the last 25 years or so uh, under the impact of, first of all, Mrs Thatcher and then Tony Blair. I'm just talking about Britain here, um, but I think that's probably true in the Western world in general. Um, um, today, actually, I saw for the first time a question uh, we've been asked by Lord Mandelson, or more precisely by the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills. I believe Britain is about the only country in the Western world that doesn't have a Department of Education. 
Um, it's now called Business Innovation Skills, and it's under Lord Mandelson. Uh, and the question was about the value of our graduate schools. And all the questions are about, do our, gra do our graduates have an impact on business? That's all. There's no question about, do our graduates have an impact on the public good? Uh, do they go into the public service? Do they manage to resist the, the blandishments of corruption, which uh, seem to be rather attractive to our MPs? Uh, none of those questions get a look in. It's simply about, do our graduates go into business? Well, that strikes me as a moral perversion. Um, and in that sense, there is scope for moral improvement. Um, like, I think, all the speakers, I wouldn't see that as a new morality. I'd see it as a reaffirmation of values which have been present in our moralities. Uh, we all have some conception of the public good as opposed to private gain. Um, and if it's withered and if its, voice is, uh, if its voice cannot be heard in the, uh, in the newspapers or the media or the television or in politicians' mouths, uh, then that's a, a call for a moral improvement. Um, so certainly there can be new things. I think the world obviously is uh, much as it has been. You can learn a lot about ethics from reading the Greek tragedies. Uh, you can learn a lot from reading the book of Job or Ecclesiastes. You can learn a lot from reading Hume or Kant. And I'm sure you can learn a lot from reading a lot of Jewish and Islamic authors too. So the, the parameters of human life don't change all that much. Um, they change slowly, they don't change radically. Um, but of course, the new world does bring in new, new uh, opportunities and new possibilities for people to go wrong. Uh, fairly obviously, cooperation has always been a fragile problem for human beings. Um, some evolutionary psychologists speculate that we're all very tribal, and religions, whatever else they may be, are certainly tribal badges and serve to exa exacerbate difference. They may do other good things, but they do that. Um, and of course, overcoming tribalism, overcoming difference, is a major challenge, and it's going to be a big challenge in the, uh, in the, in the arena set by things like global warming, the need to coordinate over uh, progressively scarcer resources, a world growing colder, possibly a world growing less hospitable to us. Um, and all that's going to take cooperation on a scale that probably has never been achieved in human history. There's usually been the other, somebody it's okay to be at war with. And if you look at places where theocracies rule, you'll see that there's usually an, another bang on the boundary line, bang on the bang in the neighborhood, uh, who it's okay to be at war with. Uh, it was one of the achievements of uh, the West, and particularly culminating in Western Europe, the secular European countries, uh, to drive the churches out of government, and they've managed to cooperate jolly well ever since, and I think that's a jolly good thing. Um, I think that um, the um, role that so troubles the other three here, the role of preserving identity, uh, is a two-edged sword. Uh, preserving identity is often things like preserving memory of victimhood, um, and I think that's a jolly bad thing. It's a pity that people... Uh, revel in certain kind of roles. Uh, it's, uh, it's a way of uh, exaggerating the extent to which the world owes you a living. Uh, and I think that's a pity. I think that's another perversion of ethics which we, we have to look out for. And I think that's increasingly prevalent in the modern world. Um, so when I hear talk of faith groups, um, I agree not only shouldn't they become pressure groups, but I rather wish human beings wouldn't group themselves for a start. I regard myself, I much prefer to regard myself as a citizen of the world uh, rather than as a, someone from County Durham, for example. 
which is where I'm actually from, but I don't, uh, I don't regard myself as part of the Durham community uh, and think that the Northumberland community is a bit of a dodgy lot and, you know, and, and down in the Yorkshire community they eat their young. Um, and, and, and yet that is so often the message that religi religious groupings seem willy-nilly to, to convey. And you only have to look at the world's great trouble spots to see uh, the truth of that. So I think another, um, uh, the, the virtues, of course, that David mentioned are cardinal virtues, and they're absolutely right. Courage, justice, prudence, temperance, hope and love, and faith, provided it's faith in something decent. Um, faith in the God of the Old Testament I regard as a terribly bad thing and I wish people wouldn't have it. Uh, the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and jealous and concerned above all else with uh, his priority amongst the pantheon of gods that people have. Um, I think that's a very bad thing to have faith in. Um, faith in uh, basic human goodness, faith in the possibility of the kind of care for the uh, disadvantaged, the underprivileged that David talked about. Faith in that kind of thing is wonderful. So the word faith by itself is entirely neutral. It depends what you put your faith in. Um, if you put it in this world, uh, then you might do something to improve this world, and I think that would be a very good thing. Thank you very much.